So this morning we're going to be getting getting into Galatians 3. Uh, we're going to start at Galatians 3.26, and I promise you we will get into uh, chapter 4 this Sunday. So uh, why don't we get into the Word? Let's see, Galatians 3.26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized in the Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What, am I, say, what I am saying is that as long as, you were, uh, you were, uh, as long as uh, an heir was underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees and, until the time is set by the father. So also, when you were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental forces, spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time has come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you were his, God sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child, and since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Man, that is... That I, I, Paul is a writer. I know he had help with the Holy Spirit, but that is just, and, and some of that we're going to get into because we don't quite understand what, or there's some nuance there and so forth. But man, you know, we, we just ask for the Spirit to help us make sense of these words. Because as many of you know, the local debate during the first century church was uh, who was better than who in the church? Now, they would have never admitted that, but, but you know, the Jews were kind of like, well, you know, God chose us first, so we're, of course, we're better, and, and we're just allowing you to come into us. But there are certain rules that we have that, that you have to, to abide by for you to be just like us, because we're better, you know. They didn't quite, they would never admit this, they didn't quite know that, that that's what they were doing, but this is what the Apostle Paul is reacting to. Like, like most had the, uh, you know, most people within the church had the standard membership card and others had the, the double platinum, more points, free luggage status in the church, you know? So you had your Italian believers, you had the Greek believers, you had the African believers, and they were treated like second class citizens in church, even though they probably made up the majority of the people, uh, of the church in Galatia. Now, the only way to get into this exclusive club, according to the Jews, was if they started doing stuff like eating kosher, following the rules, celebrating the Old Testament, you know, festivals religiously, uh, you know, the Sabbath and making sure you got it. There's certain rules you got to keep for the Sabbath. And then men going under the knife for adult male circumcision. You know, the founder of, of the Galatia church is the Apostle Paul, and he is furious he's he's you know writing from a distance and i'm sure he's just scribbling away you know he he loves his run-on sentences and this and this and don't forget this and he is saying i establish you guys as fellowships and families all these different you know international church basically intentionally coming against the kind of religious and ethnic prejudices that's been happening 
<coughs> now, knowing that we have a new covenant, a new testament, a Messiah, a Messiah for, for all the people, and Abraham is the father of all of us, Paul has made a huge sacrifice. He's traveling hundreds of miles to establish this, these grace-filled fellowships that had no levels of, of membership. If they had been clothed in Christ, put on, you know, those clothes, or they, were, they were put on in Christ, they were clothed for that, taken public baptism, that was it. You were a part of the group. And in verse 26, he reminds them of this. So in Christ Jesus, you were children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and had clothed yourselves with Christ. There's no, you know, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you all are one in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the purpose. Now, I don't know if you notice in, in Paul's writing, he oftentimes uses an if-then phrase. And this is what he's doing. And, and this is what Paul will say. If you belong to Christ, you are four things. First off, you're Abraham's offspring. That's very important for us to understand. Secondly, we are heirs to a vast inheritance that God has given through Christ. We are, and next, we are not slaves to any earthly, earthly master any longer. And lastly, you're God's adopted children. These four perks alone are worth the price of admission. These four, if we focus on these things, but the natural question is, are we supposed to be focused on these things? Are these for a group living 2,000 years ago? Are they for you and I? And if so, should we be evaluating church history to see if the church has added different levels or layers to the membership to the mix, creating an exclusive club called the church? So we have to ask ourselves, is the clergy, the pastor, the priest on the same level as those who attend? Are they more, you know, are the more spiritual people, those we call the saints, are they better than us? Are we all saints? Do big donors get special treatment? Or maybe those who serve or, or those who have special talents. How about those that get up on stage? We haven't done a lot of stage stuff lately because of, you know, the uh, coronavirus. But are they more special than those who don't, you know, don't like to get on stage? How about those who pick up the Christian lingo, who are able to talk using a, a special language around the church? How about those who pray well in, in group settings? You know, those that you, you listen to and you think, man, if I could only pray like that. What do we do with these people? Do we think of them as, as more spiritual are those who, who get religious degrees, are they better than those who have a normal job? This is a very interesting conversation. I think it's a very important one to have within the church. I would say the church at times, we have become like Disneyland. You know what I'm saying? For a mere $130, you can get into the gate. Oh, you, you want to take your family four? Okay, that's like, what, 520 if my math is right? Some of you are getting out your calculators, aren't you? <laughs> now, you want to go more than three days. Well, we'll give you a little discount. It'll be 1483 or something like that. Oh, you want to eat? Oh, man, I mean, you've you got to add like $600 for three days to be able to eat inside there. 
Now you're finally inside the gate with your family, but there's a portion of the park that you cannot even enjoy. It is called Club 33. Do you know about this club? It is fascinating. Right in the middle of Disneyland in New Orleans Square, there, there's a door that some can go through. Well, 487 to be precise, who are members, along with some of their friends that they invite. They get to go and enjoy a meal much different than what you and I get. They're in the club, and they waited years to get in the club. In fact, they they paid something like $10,000 just to be able to walk through the door each year and eat. And the funny thing is, they still have to pay for the meal. I mean, that's fascinating. But now the, the line to get into that, in other words, there's a, there's a waiting list to get into the club, and once somebody you know, leaves the club, then somebody else can come in, you know, hey, you know but you've got to pay your dues and all that. The line is like 14 years long to, to get into Club 33. I think my wife and I, we only have like six years left or something. <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> like we're going to pay $10,000 to be able to get into that part. Come on. Paul says... God's family is not like that at all. There's no secret doorways. There's no secret handshakes, whatever. If you've given yourself to Christ, you are an insider. And the Apostle Paul would say, I am not at a better level than you are. Now, you may say, there are some Christians that I admire. Well, that's great. Someone you've watched and somebody you've copied and styled, you, you've emulated them because they're really emulating Christ. They would even say, I'm not better than you because all I'm doing is copying Christ. See, this is what happens when we humble ourselves. We need to, to operate the opposite of how the world works. We need to be humble. We need to, to make sure the church is running the opposite of the world. We need to be imitating Jesus. The membership is, is hinging on one thing and one thing only, belonging to Jesus Christ. Because I can tell you, there's several things that doesn't get you the membership. Showing up to church doesn't get you that membership. Donating to church doesn't get you that membership. Even volunteering doesn't get you to that membership. Working for the church doesn't get you that membership. The only thing that does is saying, I belong to Jesus Christ. It is a fascinating statement. We spend a lifetime giving ourselves to Christ. I mean, I gave myself to Christ when I was a little boy. I had no idea what that would mean as I grew up. As I grew up, how the world would act was different than how I would act. I mean, when my friends started to drink, I, I really didn't. I, you know, it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a, I'm better than you or anything like that. It was just like, no, I, I don't want to drink if that's going to uh, make me lose, uh, lose uh, my faculties, if it's going to make me lose my mind and, and be able to be a little free, more willing. And uh, you know what I'm saying? I, I want to be in control. I don't want to lose control. In fact, I didn't have my first drink till, uh, you know, I was around 22. And in a joking manner, I would say, and I've never looked back. But I would only be joking, and, and I don't really have a desire to, to joke like that, just like I don't have a desire for alcohol. I mean, have a drink every now and then on vacation or something, but it's not something I crave. 
alcohol's not bad. The misuse of alcohol definitely goes against God's ways. But as a Christian, why would I want to drink something that allows me to lose control? It really doesn't interest me. Now, some of my friends started smoking. Well, I didn't. Some of my friends changed boyfriends and girlfriends and all the stuff that goes with that all the time. I waited. Why? Because I was better than others? No, because I'd given myself over to Christ and, and Christ's protection was around me. Now, if you had the opposite upbringing, praise the Lord. The only requirement for membership in God's kingdom is accepting Him as Lord and Savior. See, it doesn't matter what happened in your past. It doesn't matter what you may have done. Once you say, I am yours, Lord, then you are adopted into the kingdom. You have to give yourselves over to Christ. Every morning, every day at noon, every event, every conversation we have, every decision, if you belong to Christ, then you have to give that over to Him. And guess what? You're in the club. If you don't belong to Christ, it it just breaks my heart. I want people to be in the club. You know, at the George Floyd protest uh, uh, on Thursday in Tulare, it was great. It was peaceful. We were able to listen to one another. Voices were heard. But I was saddened by one gentleman who, who talked. He said he wasn't very religious, that he only believes in humans and their kindness toward one another. Well, that saddens me. It breaks my heart to hear them say this because, because you know, because what Satan has done, humans are not kind to one another. And unfortunately, this young man will pay the price in the end for not searching for God. And that hurts my heart to know that he rejects the one thing that can save him in the end. That is the membership requirement. Believing we belong to Jesus Christ. So what does this look like for us? What does it look like uh, on a weekend when we're out with our friends? What does it look like at, you know, at work on Monday or Tuesday? What does it look like in our house and how we treat our kids or our spouse and, and all that stuff? What does it look like in a house where, where half have decided to belong to Christ and the other half have not? What does it look like in our neighborhood to our, to our neighbors when we go out and, and talk and joke and, and get to know them? What does it look like when we look at our calendars? How about finances? What does that look like? I mean, I belong to Christ, so everything I have belongs to Christ. I'm not saying your finances belong to the church. I'm saying they belong to Christ. It's His business, not the church's. Belonging to Christ is such a simple phrase that that when we read this, we generally just go like right over it. But it has huge implications in our lives. It is the theme do I belong to Christ? Now, question. How does my life prove to me that I belong to Christ? Much less prove to anyone else. How would anybody who just is, is getting to know me, we're talking in the first few hours of getting to know someone, would they know that I belong to Christ? Am I different from the world? that I'm possessed by Christ, and I, that I'm owned by Christ, do they realize that as Christ's prized possession? Would they pick up on that uh, and how quickly? How would they pick up on it? Because I preached a mini-sermon that I've memorized for people that I meet. 
Or is it because I'm obviously different from the get-go? That I'm absolutely upside down from this world? What about someone who has known me for years? A friend or a spouse? Would they say, you belong to Christ? Belonging to somebody, that, that is such a weird concept for many of us. I mean, we are a July 4th, 1776, and a January 1st, 1863 people. Unfortunately, it took 87 years before Abraham Lincoln signed the, the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, you know, where the slaves were freed. But, man, it's, it's sadly fascinating that in a country who said we, we didn't want to be owned by another country, and then we turn around and own people. It's kind of part of our humbling legacy. We still have ramifications of that today. Throughout history, many people have fought for, for different freedoms here in the, you know, slavery and the Civil War, fought for that freedom. Great Britain trying to preserve their freedom during World War II. In Germany, the, the people were, were defeated and they finally received their freedom back. Poland receiving their freedom back. So it's not a natural thing to say, I will be owned by somebody. We don't sit out in life saying, man, I, I hope I end up somebody else's possession. But that's exactly what Paul's saying we need. Jesus says, belong to me. Be my bondservant. As in volunteering to be a servant. That is the best type of belonging you can have. We have to actually be given, uh, you know, by the power of the Holy Spirit, this desire to be want to be owned by Christ. When you think about it, it's just as unusual that Paul is saying to, uh, this to them. The book of Galatians is all about freedom. And here Paul's talking about we should be going into slavery. We should belong. Paul, right in the middle of freedom, you're saying if we belong to Christ, Christ owns you. Wow. But Paul, would you say that, the, but, but, but Paul would say you can't find real freedom until you're allowed yourself to belong to Christ. Paul was not only a strong and independent man, he was a first century Jew. And Jews hated the fact that someone owned them, somebody controlled them. Caesar reminded them of Pharaoh. 1,400 years before this, uh, you know, they, uh, they, Pharaoh owned the Jewish human beings. As, as his possession, basically. For 400 years, the Jews allowed, you know, followed Moses out into the desert to get away from this. They went to a place where it was harsh, and they said, we would rather have this than be slaves. Freedom smells and feels and tastes so good. God took them to Sinai and said, let's, let's put some boundaries around this. He said, I am your God, and you are my people. I own you, and you own me. You get to have me in your community, the creator of the universe. You get to have me in your tent of meeting. You can have me in your holy of holies. Later, Christ comes and says, you can have me in your heart. You can possess the God of the universe. The almighty creator of all things can live right here in me and around me. Now that is amazing. God says it like this. I am my beloved's. And my beloved's is mine. It's like a, you know, like, a, like a marriage, like a healthy marriage with boundaries. See, this is the beauty of being owned by Jesus. 
and figuring out what that means. Our Father has set this up that any feelings of restrictions are far outweighed by the sheer list of benefits of having God. This is the greatest ownership opportunity that you will ever see. And I'm not doing a one-week timeshare pitch. It's wonderful when we begin to to grasp this. It, It is hard even after all the years of following the Lord to understand this. It's like our minds are being blown. My son would just go, poof. Anytime something blows his mind, he does a poof. I own him. And he owns me. Wow, it's a mutual thing. And when we discover that saying yes to Jesus has opened this door, not only do we begin to understand lordship, but we begin to understand the fatherhood of God. He makes us in this transaction where we say, yes, take me. And he says, yes, take me. We start to become what we've been talking about lately, adopted heirs, adopted children, everything he is and everything he has we allow jesus to show up and rescue us from from this deep dark pit and after the pit comes the living room the family room the dining room the vast estate of god's the vast unlimited resources of being adopted into this amazing eternal family now i will admit this family is a little dysfunctional because of us not because of god because he keeps adopting these dysfunctional brothers and sisters into the family. I wish he would cap it off at some point, but when we think about what that means, that means somebody's going to hell, so we, we have to be careful with those thoughts. For you, uh, you know, are, are all one in Christ Jesus, he says in verse 28. Verse 29, he says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. An heir. What is an heir? A person who inherits property and obligations from from a predecessor, and they often assume a role or a title. They enjoy the inheritance that that they haven't earned at all, and sometimes they accept the responsibilities that go with that, and they live in a way, or they're supposed to, that is pleasing to the one who passed it down. That's why it's called a will. It is a will of the one who passed it down. So a good heir, a faithful heir, lives in a way that the deceased person wouldn't roll over in their grave. Let's look at somebody like Conrad Hilton. Not a perfect man by any means, but an American success story. He passed away in uh, 1979. As a teenager, he enlisted in World War I to fight for freedom. In his early 20s, he was a part of New Mexico State's legislature. When he was 32, he brought the the first Hilton Hotel. And uh, Conrad Hilton often talked about his mother taught him how to pray. She dragged him to church all the time. She taught him to to cry out to God when crises hit. Like when his dad died in an automobile accident. He cries out to God. Or when the the Great Depression hit and, and they had to start over. He was a praying man and he cried out to God. Now, let's talk about one of his heirs. One of his first, you know, most famous heir. Who, who is it? You know who it is. Paris Hilton. Even her dogs have a home. A $350,000 doghouse. 
<laughs> you can actually go online and take a tour of it. My point is this. A person can be an heir of someone and not get it. Paul continues his thought in chapter 4. What am I, he says, what I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns a whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time is set by his father. Now, this phrase is important, time set by his father. Paul is telling us 20 centuries later about what, he is, you know, about what he's talking about. We wouldn't have known this naturally. A Roman child is literally the possession of the Roman father until he reaches adulthood. The date of adulthood is set by his father. This picture Paul sets for us is fascinating because he sets it showing the picture of our father, Yahweh, and what he does and how Yahweh sets our date in a sense. Paul is using an extremely pagan ritual that happened on March 17th of every Roman calendar year in every Roman city. It's called the Liberolia. It is, it is kind of what Romans, uh, you know, use. Uh, we, we're used to the words bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah for the boy and girl in the Jewish family. But, but not as tame as this, this Liberolia. It's a fertility ritual. Not just that, but it includes that, but it's so much more. But I love Paul for this. He grabs an illustration out of culture that everyone knows about. Some may have even, within the church, even experienced it. But Paul doesn't, you know, but Paul doesn't fit within the church, uh, or, or this example doesn't really fit in the church. One minute he's talking about Abraham and the Jews and being the seed of Abraham, and they're all like nodding along going, Preach it, brother. I got you. I got you. Go. Yeah. Okay. I understand that. And the next minute he's talking to, to the other half about this ritual for manhood in the Roman Empire. And Paul becomes this type of preacher that the religious people love to hate. How dare you, you know, desecrate the holiness of preaching and, and writing scriptures by bringing up this pagan illustration. Paul is like, but yeah, I have to live in that culture. I'm trying to get them to understand because half the churches, you know, are, are, are Romans. <coughs> In the Liberalia, um, the, the father is saying, by March 17th of next year, my son will be ready. And he starts to prepare a son. And for the rest of his life, he will answer to being a man. He will answer for his own decisions. His father took him to this public ceremony after <coughs> excuse me after all the parades and all that going on and, and at one part you had this amazing part of the ceremony and it's striking how it resembles what the father does for us through Jesus Christ where the son steps forward and the son could be like 8 9 11 17 or older he steps forward and then the father steps forward the son takes off this toga he's been wearing has all these different colors. It signifies the boy is not yet mature. He, he is a child. His life is colorful. And he takes it off. And the father then takes the, the white toga and this perfectly white toga. And he grabs it. And, he, and it's pure. And he puts it on him. And it puts it on the son. And when that toga is adjusted and on, the son becomes a man in the eyes of the community and according to Roman law. He is now the legal heir of, of what the father owns. He is not the possession of the father anymore. In Roman society, the law is now 
um, that, that he is the brother of the father. It's kind of weird how they say these things. But the son now has voting privileges. Why? Because the Roman father says he's ready to, to be a man. And he gives him that toga. It's a powerful ceremony in the Roman culture. So let's read Galatians 4 again with this in mind. As long as an heir is under age, he is no different from the slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to the guardians and trustees until the time is set by the father. Verse 3, so also, when you were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental forces or spiritual forces of the world. But when the time set has fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. You see, this is why Paul is so dumbfounded about these churches. These churches have been founded. He built the foundation for them. And they would take the, the, and for them to take a step back into religious ridiculousness, once, you know, once they'd had this, they're able to to address the Almighty God, the, the God of the universe, the God of the book of Exodus, to be able to cry out to him, Daddy, Daddy. You know, God sent his, uh, you know, the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. This is a great image. When I leave home, my son wants to hug me before I go. Both of them do. And when I return, the, uh, you know, the, they both come out and greet me or whatever. My youngest cries out, Daddy! And he runs and he just leaps up into my, my arm and, and, and gives me a big hug. Now, the older one used to until I finally told him, Hey, you're going to kill my back if you keep doing that. You're getting too big, you know. But the young one, he just leaps into my arms knowing that I won't drop him. And I can swing him around and he just laughs and laughs. He's so excited I am there. And he's like, Daddy is home! Man, what, you know, what a feeling that is. It's also an image of when a little boy wakes up from a dream. Right now, our, our youngest keeps coming to our bed at night, and he crawls in, and he just snuggles up to us. But ever so often, he has a bad dream. He'll sit up, and he'll cry out, Mommy, or he'll cry out, Daddy. And then sometimes he'll just plop right down in the middle of my back and use my back as a pillow. It is so comfortable. You know, when kids are upset... There's something magical about calling out to your parents. Daddy, Daddy, I'm hurt. Daddy, look at this. Daddy, I'm scared. Daddy, I'm happy. Daddy, look at what I did. Hey, Daddy, I spilled. Daddy, I ate everything. Daddy, I helped you. (laughs) Daddy, I love you. This is what our Father wants from you. He wants you to adore him and tell him everything, the good, the bad, when you, when you spill something, when you don't spill something, when you, when you help him out. And he goes, okay, I'll go clean up the mess now. You know, it, but, but he wants to meet our needs. Whatever terrifies you in the middle of the night, we have a heavenly father can actually fix everything. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Kids, like, kids tend to think their dads can do everything. They're, they're like Superman for, for a while up into a certain age, and they finally realize, Dad can't do everything. 
But it's nice when they think we can. But guess what? We have a heavenly Father can actually fix everything. What He has for us in exchange, you know, for us being willing to, to be a part of His family, has no measure. Only the devil could convince you to dismiss this part. And, you know, man, be a part of our family. Call our dad your dad. Don't just do it on a weekend. See, my prayers for each of you would be for you to call out to your Father in heaven, Daddy, Daddy, and love him. Tell him your needs, especially if something terrifies you or when you run out of resources and you wonder how, how am I going to do this? This is impossible. And he says, no, it's not because you have a dad who can, who can fix things. Cry out, Daddy, 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 Abba, Father, help me. You know, we rejoice with God all the time, but we need to cry out to Him when we bump our knee in a sense. We need to cry out to Him when, when we don't see a path and say, Lord, direct my feet. Daddy, direct my feet. Daddy, help me here. Daddy, lift me up. Daddy, can I sit with you? That word daddy is magical, magical, especially when it comes to our heavenly father. Cry out to him today if that's what you need to do. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those out there that need to call you daddy, that you would, you know, your Holy Spirit would just draw them in. If we can be used in that way to draw people to you, that you would use us. Lord, help us be a light into this darkened world and what's going on right now in our nation. Help us stand up and say right is right and wrong is wrong. I pray that the cooler heads will prevail in in our nation as as people are getting out too late at night and causing mayhem, that you would take care of that. But Lord, I also pray for for constructive, uh, um, um, constructive discussions that we can have grace-filled discussions about where, what direction we go and where do we go and the goods and the bads and, and, and all the nuances that are in that, Lord. We won't be able to solve this because we're human. And we know that your scriptures say that things will actually get worse before the end. But Lord, before that end comes, we pray that many would come to get to know you. Many would scream out, Abba, Father, and that we might be used to to direct them to you. Oh, that would be so wonderful. No matter what age we are, we have a chance to be used by the Almighty God, the Creator of this universe. How amazing is that? Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. You are our Daddy. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. May His face never turn from you when you call Him Daddy. In the name of our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You guys have a wonderful week.